0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the KASB advocacy update for Friday, June 19th, 2020. As you probably know, it's also Juneteenth today. We are very happy to have with us this morning Dr. Brad Noonswander, who is the Deputy Commissioner of Education for KSDE, and we are going to have Brad start us off this morning with a uh, brief presentation and some Q&A around the KASD planning for the reopening of schools in the fall, Brad, thanks so much for being here today, and I'll throw it over to you.
1: All right, thank you. Um, I appreciate you guys inviting us. Uh, obviously, um, you know, I was on the phone this morning with one of our state board members, and uh, it's it's not like we can dust off the old how to operate schools in a pandemic playbook and uh, refer to it because this is new for all of us. But I, um, Randy and I can't be more pleased with uh, the just the sheer number of Kansas educators and, um, and even those outside of education that have volunteered to lean into this work to provide guidance to our school districts um, going into the fall or going into August in the event of, and we don't even know what August is gonna look like. So I'm gonna share my screen with you and just kind of walk you through kind of the stages of work that's taken place and then what we can expect uh, coming up going into July and August. So let me just, All right, Mark, with a nod, can you, Is everything look all right? Okay. Looks great here. All right, thanks. Well, you know, there, there's all, all this new terminology now that, you know, you go back a couple months ago when we weren't even uh, using certain phrases or, or language, but we're calling this Navigating Change 2020. Uh, how do we just go about moving into the unknown based on what we've experienced here in the, the last couple months. So there's really, and, and I know if, if you're like me, I'm going to reduce, what I'm going to reduce the, how many pictures I can see and move that up into the corner. Because sometimes if you have all the, all the screens of everybody on the right hand side, it's gonna block some of these slides, so I just kind of reduced that. But we're really looking at uh, three stages and stage one started in May, but I I think we need to recognize March before the governor even announced that there would be um, schools Facilities would be closed. We had reached out uh, to a team which was chaired by Cindy Kalchman, the um, new superintendent in Bueller, currently the assistant superintendent, Diane Smokorowski from Andover, and Tabitha Rostroy, our current Kansas Teacher of the Year and now National Teacher of the Year. And we asked them could you get a group of teachers together and in 72 hours put together some guidelines on how might we provide continuous learning opportunities in the event facilities are closed for the remainder of the year. And they just did a fantastic job. That work um, was copied and used by uh, at least 20 other states uh, across the nation, but, that, that was to get us through the end of the year. And, and we know that some teachers, some students were more successful in that than others, but we knew that we had a little bit more time to make plans uh, for, the, for next August. So in stage one in May, we, we put together two teams. One of them was called an operations team and just go out there and find as much as you can about how to to open facilities, how to clean them, uh, how often do you wipe door handles down, um, what should classrooms look like, what should hallways look like, how should busing look like, food service. So there was just the whole operations of what do we know right now that um, we could put together resources. And then there was an instructional team that consisted of our staff and about 80 other educators across the state said, how can we take the standards, the content standards, which is what students should know and be able to do at every grade level and move those into competencies competency statements that say the student should be able to, and let's grade band those. We'll have them um, by each grade and then by grade bands, pre-K through two, three through five, six through eight, and nine through 12. So we had a team of a little over 80 people took those standards, turned them into competencies and prioritized them with the thought that in the event of another disruption, what is priority? What is key that our students need to be engaged in and how can they demonstrate um, that they're learning those competencies? And we also uh, package them in STEAM, science, technology, engineering, arts and math, and then the humanities. So we had a team uh, in stage one put those together and then we went into stage two, and that's currently the work going on right now in um, uh, across the state in the month of June. There are three teams. There's an operations team, and I'll talk a little bit about um, who's involved in that, but they're looking at how to, you know, just How do we transition kids from one classroom to the next or one facility? What about classroom spaces, facilities, food service? Um, That is chaired by Frank Harwood um, and Ashley Goss. Ashley Goss is the uh, uh, Assistant Secretary for uh, Health and Environment. Um, And then we have an implementation team that's being chaired by four Kansas teachers at those grade bands. And and I'll talk a little bit about who are in each one of those. And then there's an oversight team. This is chaired by Corey Gibson, um, superintendent at Valley Center and Shannon Ralph, former teacher of the year and teacher at DeSoto. And they're looking at How can we provide consistency with these two sets of guidelines, the formatting? Is it user friendly uh, to school districts, school boards? And then after stage two, so by the end of June, we will then move into stage three, which is we're going to have over 500 teachers across the state look at these. and try to identify what's the professional development needs that Kansas educators are going to to have to have in the event we need to use these guidelines. I wanna make it clear, these guidelines are not what you have to do, they're options for you to consider in the event of a disruption. We also have a lot of our redesigned schools that have gone through some of these changes through their redesign look at these and provide some guidance and input on how might we better implement these. So that's kind of the flow of the work. Uh, Again, uh, these are the people that are um, chairing. Um, Again, Frank Harwood and Ashley Goss on the operations, Frank Superintendent at DeSoto. On the implementation, we have four teachers. Um, You you can see them on the lower left from Renwick, Dodge City, DeSoto, and Seaman. And then the the two chairs for the oversight committee that really wants to make sure that these two um, sets of guidelines complement each other and are user-friendly to the field. This is just some examples of who is on, what kind of voices we have. So on the operations, of course, we have health and environment, school administrators, teachers, transportation directors. I'm not gonna read it all to you, but we've got local board members. Um, Some of you on here might be serving on one of these. We've got state board members, legislators, county health officials. On the instructional side, we wanted to make sure we had parents involved We have counselors, psychologists, social workers, library media specialists, service centers. Uh, We have teachers that that represent special ed students, ESL, the arts, PE, so we got a whole blend of voices between those two groups, the operations and the implementation that are looking at instruction. There's about three, there's over 300 Kansas or Kansas serving right now during the month of June, just working tirelessly, putting these guidelines together with the thought of what would we tell our peers? What suggestions guidance that if we think about how might we go about doing this? That's what they're looking at and providing. On the operations committee. Um, They're broken down into several subgroups. I just thought I'd share. They're looking at, uh, you know, uh, common spaces like gyms, uh, cafeteria. How do we transition students from one space to another? What should classroom spaces look like? How do we just open our facilities? You know, how do we clean? How often should we clean? how often, you know, in a lot of our new facilities, they have windows that don't even open. So what type of filtering system do we need to move there? I mean, they're, they're really being intentional about thinking, how do we keep educators and students safe? So these are just some, you know, extra uh, curricular and co-curricular activities, you know, sports, um, you know, we get, um, speech, drama, debate, you know, just suggestions on how might we do this differently. Kind of the timeline for stage two. Um, Our goal is um, for the work to be done at the end of June so we can share a draft. It'll be at the Thursday superintendent meeting that we Zoom with them, that we will share with them these drafts on navigating change. They will be presented to the State Board on Tuesday, July 14th for approval and then released um, by the latest Thursday, July 16th, if not um, immediately after the Board approves them. So. I'm going to stop sharing. Uh, I know that was a lot of me talking at you. So um, Leah, I'll, I'll open it up for questions because I I don't think they want to hear Tom debt talk for the next 20 minutes. <laughs>
0: Thanks, Brad, that was great information. Uh, If folks have questions for Brad, why don't you go ahead and put them in the chat, that way we don't uh, step on each other's uh, voices and lock each other out. So any questions for Dr. Noonswander on the upcoming guidance from the State Department of Ed on opening schools again in the fall?
1: And while we're waiting on questions to pop up, here's a couple things I think Uh, board members, or all of us need to consider. Um, We hear already from a lot of school districts that as they've done pre-enrollment, there's a population of students that their parents are like, I'm sorry, but I'm not sending my kid back physically because of some health condition or whatever the reason. So in these guidelines will be recommendations about how could you then provide high quality learning to students remotely? Because that's different than the County Health Department saying, you know, we just had someone in your building test positive, so we're gonna close your school for 14 days. That's different. There will be guidelines on how to address in the event that you need to to, um, go to a hybrid model where you may have some students coming in on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, because the county said you can't have more than 30 kids. You know, so there's a lot of uh, scenarios that we don't know, but these guidelines we hope will, give you some ideas on how might you address whatever happens. Because the 1116 hours, if your county does not limit you, so I'm going to, I'm just going to take an example. Let's say uh, Piper School District in Johnson County, let's say the county's like you can open for all students with no restrictions. So they're making learning available to all of their kids. So they don't have to worry about the 1,116 hours. But we know that they may have 10% of their students, their parents choose, we're not sending them, we're not taking the chance. So then how do you count those kids in your enrollment, get funded for them when they're working 100% at home? we really want is the neighborhood student enrolled in their neighborhood school working with their neighborhood teacher. There is the option of just enrolling them in a virtual school, but I can tell you for the large percent of our student population that's not going to be successful. So there will be guidelines on how might you provide high quality instruction with that neighborhood teacher and that neighborhood student at home and keep them on pace with their peers that are showing up in person. So there's a lot of scenarios that we don't know what August is going to look like yet, but we hope that these guidelines are going to give all of you as board members some options to consider because if your parents want choice, then how can you go about giving them that because of some health condition? Or you may have teachers that have health conditions. What options could you, how could you still use them effectively? So so anyway, I got to talking again.
0: (laughs) Any questions for Brad? If so, please place them in the chat. So what I'm, I was hearing from you, uh, Dr. Noonswander, is that people should not be waiting until July 15th or 16th um, to make their plans. They need to start planning now and anticipate and know that the guidance will be there in mid-July, but they should not. Just sit around and wait for KSDE. Is that correct?
1: Absolutely. And it, it, I think one of the, the most important thing that you could be doing right now is surveying and communicating with your parents in your community. Making sure that they know that they're going to have some options. Finding out uh, kind of what your landscape might look like. Um, because I've heard from several school districts already that um, have heard that 20 to 30% of their parents don't want to send their kids back in person. And, you know, and and again, every community is going to be different. You know, when you got Colby setting out in Thomas County that has yet to have one confirmed case to Finney County where Garden City, I believe that's Finney County, Still has an increase, you know. So every county and every district is going to look different. I think the most important thing you can be doing right now is communicating with your staff, your parents, and your students about, um, you know, we I, I keep hearing this the new normal. Well, it won't <laughs> be the same, but we don't know what it will. We just have to be prepared. Here's one thing we do know. All of our kids need to be engaged next year. We can't go any longer with with the students that, um, you know, very well have uh, not been engaged since the middle of March. And we've got to make it safe. So the the question I see about wearing masks, there will be guidelines on how to wear a mask, how to do it appropriately, but again those are all going to be local decisions unless your county health directs you otherwise. <coughs> Excuse me. We, um, Dr. Watson and I were on a Zoom yesterday with a company out of Atlanta or somewhere in Georgia. Um, they have developed these um, uh, facial screens instead of masks. They kind of come up. They, But instead of wrapping around the head, they come around the neck and they just hold and they just lay out in front of you, you know, for food service, for teachers that are leaning over. So we're going to provide a lot of options, but it's going to be the local board that decides and really in communication with your county health. So the question is, if a student is kept at home from the start of school, do they have to seek out a district that is approved to offer virtual school? Um, It's, that's that's your choice. I think these guidelines are going to give you options to provide learning at home for that child if you so choose to, and we count them in your enrollment, the FTE, just as if they were physically in the building. But it will be your decision locally whether or not you want to do that. Um, I will tell you, um, when you look at our statewide data for virtual students, um, academically, their chance of ever graduating high school is very slim. You have to be very self-motivated, have a parent that is there, you know, so it's, that's why, I mean, that is an option, but it might be an option for a very small percent of your students because you have to be, you have to have um, self-regulation, you have to have accountability, uh, I mean internal, the student and the parent, uh, persistency, goal setting, all of those skills to be successful in that environment. But these guidelines will give you options to consider. For for example, uh, um, one of our school districts is looking at, they know about 10% of their students are going to want to stay home. And the parents want, what are our options? One is enroll in a virtual school. This district is like, no, we're going to take some of our COVID-19 dollars, the money that we receive, we're gonna select some of our teachers that would like a supplemental, kind of like a coaching that From 8 to 3.15, they're working with brick and mortar in person and from 3.30 to 5.30, they will be working one-on-one daily with those students, so just those types of guidelines will be there. We also know another district that has some teachers that have health conditions. But we're proven very effective over the last couple months in doing remote learning. So they will have some teachers full time working from home, serving those students that are at home. And we will make guidelines to help to be able to count them as if they were a brick and mortar, even though they never stepped foot in. So again, those are just going to be choices and options for local districts to consider on how to serve all kids. We don't need 286 virtual schools. (laughs) What we need is that neighborhood kid engaged with that neighborhood teacher. Those are the other types of options that we're working on in these guidelines in order for you to say, yes, we would rather do that. Okay.
0: Sorry. Any other questions for Brad before we turn to the remainder of our programming today? All right. Well, Brad, thank you so much for joining us for this. I know this has been very helpful for folks, and we certainly appreciate your time and your leadership.
1: Absolutely. You know how to get a hold of me.
0: <laughs> yes, we do.
1: Thanks. All right. Thank you.
0: Thanks. Okay. We're going to move on to our next part of our presentation today. We are going to, oh, hang on. I forgot to click share. Am I, all right. Can you see my screen? Okay. Very good. for the rest of our advocacy update today, we're going to focus on the 2020 elections. And then we're going to discuss briefly a call to action that we have um, put forth regarding stimulus funding for schools. I'm going to get started with the uh, 2020 elections discussion, and I'm going to ask Mark and Scott to pitch in with observations and uh, other information that might be relevant for all of you. So as you probably know, we have a primary election this year on August 4th and a general election on November 3rd. We have a number of offices that will be elected or retained this year, but for the purposes of this presentation today, we're going to focus on the state legislature, Congress, and the State Board of Education want to bring you to bring to your attention that mail-in voting is being strongly encouraged this year by the Secretary of State, by KASB, and by a number of other organizations. Kansas allows all voters to vote by mail in advance if they wish to do so, and all you have to do is uh, fill out an application with your county clerk, I believe. I know many of the county clerks are sending those applications by mail to you, and uh, and you can fill out the application and request a mail in advance ballot. There's some information here on the screen about how you can find out more about that, but but we are encouraging folks to vote in advance from home because we do, you know, we do think there will likely be a second corona uh, spike uh, just in time for the fall elections. so we want everyone to be safe, but also make their voice heard this year during the general and primary elections.
2: One so, Lee, I might add, one, yes, one thing that is good to remember is that, and I hope my internet has not been very stable, so I hope you're hearing me better than, than I'm hearing everything. A good way to remember it is the, the slide you had up two ago, which talks about the voter registration deadline. Remember that the ability to then request a ballot starts right after that. So if you're kind of laying out kind of in your own mind how to promote people, obviously candidates have filed, the next step will be uh, making sure people are registered to vote in time Uh, and then uh, that what comes after that is uh, almost immediately you can start requesting an absentee ballot. So if you're trying to encourage people to participate, right after a registration push, you can immediately move into a request your ballot if that's what you choose to do.
0: That's great, Mark, thank you. All right, so this year in Kansas, we have 165 legislative seats that are theoretically up for grabs. Uh, In August or November, we have five State Board of Education seats open. We have, well, not open, at question, we have four members of the US House of Representatives who are running for election or re-election, and then we have one United States Senate seat that will be on the ballot. Quick reminder that while KASB provides educational information to all candidates who request it, we don't endorse candidates, Uh, but we will be putting together some virtual and in-person briefing opportunities for you all, for candidates or, uh, or board members to meet with the advocacy staff to talk about education interests for K-12 and how candidates and school board members can uh, can work to flesh out those, those issues and uh, work on those during the, the election campaign. We've put together a list of um, It's actually an Excel spreadsheet. It's candidates by each by seat, so House and Senate for the State Legislature, Congress, State Board of Ed, and also by KASB Region. And it's available on our key resources tab on our advocacy tab on our website, and it's called 2020 elections filings. You can click on that link there and download the spreadsheet, and that will help you identify the uh, candidates that you should be getting to know in advance of the election. Anything to add there mark or scott?
2: No, just we wanted to give the an option on the spreadsheet by region so if you're interested in people in your general area, uh, you can look that way as well. When we kind of talk about candidates, you know, they kind of run all over the state, you may not know That's where right. they are, so that was just a format that means if you're kind of interested in in you in, in in the counties around you, That's a way to find them.
0: That's right, and then that's a handy tool. Top issues that that you all will be needing to discuss with candidates uh, this summer and fall are returning to school, you know, the health and safety and learning options that we heard from uh, Dr. Nuneswander about, we need to be talking about goals and outcomes, why Kansas must continue to improve student success. We need to talk about the barriers to student success and the the deep differences in our our student needs. We need to talk about how schools can change by through redesign and through resources and how we are all in this together. We have shared responsibility for student success. Mark's done a nice analysis of all of those issues and they can be found at this link, which is uh, again on our KASB page and then go to advocacy and go to key resources. All right, we're gonna take a quick look at some of the uh, races that you'll need to be focusing on uh, on, from the state legislative standpoint uh, in the summer and fall. As you may know, there are 165 seats uh, at question this year, 125 in the House, 40 in the Senate. As of the filing deadline, there were 34 House races that had no opposition, so folks either filed for re-election or filed for election. There was no one who filed against them, and those folks were automatically elected to a seat in the Kansas legislature. Twenty-five of those folks were Republicans, and nine were Democrats. That pretty much reflects the uh, Republican-Democratic split in the state legislature. Anything to add there, Mark or Scott?
2: Okay. No, and that, that may be a little bit down. We always have a number of people who are automatically elected, and I don't think that's dramatically different. It just goes to show for a lot of people in Kansas, the election's effectively already over for either right. their senator or their representative.
0: So we had 18 House members that retired or are running for another office, and four open state senate seats. So what that means is there are going to be 22 new legislators in 2021 that we are all going to need to get to know, develop a relationship with, and start to help them become the very best legislator they can be on behalf of K-12 public schools. We've got 14 house races that are being decided in the August primary. I'm going to go through these fairly quickly. Um, We have District 1, which is in Southeast Kansas. Then you've got District 6, which is an open seat that is being retired by uh, Gene Vickery, former representative Gene Vickery. We have District 8 in the Kansas City area. We have uh, District 10, a Democratic primary there for the seat retired by uh, Eileen Horn, that's in the Lawrence area. And then in Southeast Kansas, we have a Republican primary between Joe Newland and Mark Pringle. District 22, we have uh, the Kansas City area, that's an open seat that is being retired by Nancy Lusk. There's a Democratic primary there and that's where that seat will be decided. In the Kansas City area, we have a Democratic primary between Stan Fraunfelter and Aaron Coleman. Uh, Jim Carlskent and Lance Neely, that's the Tonganoxie area. And then another race that will be decided in the August primary is uh, the District 50, which is Wamego, it's also Lyon County, that's a very interestingly drawn uh, district. It's parts of Riley and Pottawatomie, Lyon, very interesting district that will be decided in the August primary as well. District 76, we have uh, Republicans running against each other there, Eric Smith and Robert Harmon. We have um, in District 93, which is near the Wichita area, that's incumbent JC Moore has a primary there. We have an open seat in, um, I would guess that say that's South Central Kansas for the seat that's being retired by Representative Alicia Straub, who is running for Senate 34. And that district is, um, Ellenwood is the, uh, the base there. Anything to add there, Mark or Scott?
2: Okay. No, I'm just trying not to compete with my dogs. Go, go ahead. <laughs>
0: <laughs> in Southwest Kansas, we have a couple of uh, primaries. We have Boyd Orr and Courtney Schweitzer in District 115. And then we, in 124, we have Marty Long and Chandler Burroughs. And the folks uh, who have an asterisk in front of their name are the incumbents. I don't know if I noted that earlier.
2: So the key thing is just to remember, if you're in one of those areas or you've got friends and neighbors in those areas, that election is gonna be over in August. So we started by talking about the 25 races that are already decided. Uh, th- this is another group in the House that if there's gonna be a debate over what that, who it is and what their position on education or any other issues, the debate's gonna be over in August. So it, 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 that, that just shows how much of what determines the legislature gets decided pretty quickly.
0: Yeah, thank you, Mark. We've got five Senate seats that are going to be decided in August. In uh, southeast Kansas, incumbent Bruce Gibbons has a challenger. Uh, Dan Goddard, sort of the um, Wichita ish area, has a challenger. That's a former Representative Virgil Peck. In the Salina area, incumbent Senator Randall Hardy is being challenged by current Representative J.R. Clay's. In the uh, South Central Kansas area, Mary Jo Taylor is the incumbent. And uh, as I mentioned a couple of slides ago, she's being challenged by Representative Alicia Straub. And then in District 39 in Southwest Kansas, the incumbent, Senator John Dahl, has a challenger there as well.
2: Mike, just comment and Scott, you jump in too if you want. But on that list, all of those incumbents that are being challenged, are people who four years ago ran as moderates and either defeated a more conservative Republican or won an open seat, basically over issues like the tax cuts and school funding. And I don't know all the challengers, but at least the, at least the middle three who are current House members or former House members have tended to be more conservative voters. So again, eight years ago, we had at eight moderate Senate Republicans defeated by conservatives. Four years ago, about eight Republican seats were defeated or filled by more moderate members. That's what shifted tax and education funding policy back. Once again, we have five people right here where you're probably gonna see that more conservative, more moderate debate playing out.
0: Thanks, Mark, that's great context. Okay, we have a number of House incumbents who have primaries. I'll go through those pretty quickly. District four, uh, we have a Republican primary there, um, and then the winner will face a Democrat in the general election. In district five, we've got Mark Samsel and Mark Powell's, the battle of the Republican marks, uh, facing uh, Roger Sims in the general election. And then in dis- district nine, we have uh, Kent Thompson as the, the uh, incumbent. He's facing Armando Hernandez, and the winner will face Alana Clotier. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Apologies if I didn't in the general. In District 20, we've got Jan Kessinger and Jane Dirks in the Republican primary facing the Democratic challenger. Uh, in District 32, which is also the Kansas City area, uh, there's a Democratic primary between Pam Curtis and Oscar Irania. And then uh, in District 35, we have Broderick Henderson, excuse me, and Nelson Gabriel in the Democratic primary and the winner faces Mark Snelson. Any comments there, um, Mark or Scott? No? Okay. Uh, District 59, in the uh, sort of central-ish, east central area, we have a current Speaker pro-tem Blaine Finch, who is running against Sherry Weber in the Republican primary and facing uh, Karen Rugg in the general. We have John Barker, who's from Abilene. He's got a primary against Daniel Wasilk. uh, And then going on to whoever wins that faces Joe Schwartz in the November general election. And then in the Salina area, incumbent Diana Dirks faces Stephen Howe. Uh, in the primary, and then the winner will face Jeffrey Zammersla in the general election. Uh, Quick, uh, any comments there? Sherry Weber is a former representative, is that correct? Yes.
2: It is. I was saying that race in that primary, you have Blaine Finch, who is the current Speaker Pro Tem, uh, seen as sort of a conservative moderate or a moderate conservative. <laughs> but certainly has been elected to leadership by a a more conservative House than two years ago, being challenged by former Representative Sherry Weber, who was majority leader of the House at one point. So you probably again have a, a, a more conservative challenger. John Barker being challenged is a current committee chair, chair of the rules committee, I believe. And Diana Dirksen Salina has been one of the more moderate and very strongly pro-education, pro-education funding members of the house. So those would be some some issues where you could see some uh, ideological changes if you watch those races.
0: In 82, we have incumbent Jesse Burris and Jeremiah Webb in the Republican primary facing Democrat Edward Hackrock in the general, in the, <clears throat> pardon me, in the Wichita area, we have incumbent Michael Capps with a primary, facing off, off against Marcy Gregory in the general, and also in the Wichita area, we have incumbent Nick Hoheisel against Michael Walker in August, and then the winner goes on to face the Democrat Kim Webb in November. Senate incumbents with primaries: We have um, Representative we have uh, Mike Thompson and Mike excuse me Mike Thompson and Tom Cox in the general. It, pardon me, I'm having trouble here. Mike Thompson and Tom Cox in the primary, and the winner faces Lindsay Constance in the general. In District 11, we have incumbent John Schubel going up against Representative Kelly Warren for that. Republican primary and the winner will face former Representative Joy Coaston, now running as a Democrat in the general election. And then in District 20, which is the Topeka area, we have uh, incumbent Senator Eric Rucker being challenged by current Representative Brenda Dietrich. And the winner there will face Democrat Rachel Willis in the November general election. Any comments or context there, uh, Mark or Scott?
3: Well, um, just
2: note Oh, Scott, go ahead.
3: No, I was uh, just to remind folks: uh, Brenda Dietrich, uh, former school superintendent, and uh, Eric Rucker, um, former, um, uh, I guess, an assistant attorney general under Phil Klein. Yeah, uh, and and then Chris Kobach too, I think. Uh, so uh, that that's an interesting uh, primary uh, that kind of represents the the two different wings of the Republican Party.
0: And just a quick note with uh, Senator Mike Thompson in District Ten, he was appointed to fill out a seat, and so he is now running for a full term on his own. It should he succeed in his primary.
2: Yeah, the, this is the. Uh, could you go back just a minute, Leah? Sure. L- these are again three interesting ones to watch because, as Leah said, Senator Thompson has not been elected before. He's he's filling out a seat. He's being challenged by Tom Cox, who is one of the most moderate House members. Uh, in the Johnson County area. In Senate District 11, John Skubal was again one of those moderates who beat a more conservative senator four years ago, being challenged by a uh, more conservative uh, House member for the Senate seat, and they will face a former representative who was a moderate Republican who became a Democrat so in each of those you've got some interesting dynamics going on and just kind of kind of the changing face of 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 politics in Johnson County in some ways which is of course the biggest the biggest group of legislators in the state are from Johnson County.
0: That's right. In District 23 which is also Johnson County we have incumbent Rob Olson with a challenger in Chris Lindquist and then uh, in the Hutch area Incumbent Senator Ed Berger is facing Mark Steffen, and the winner will go to the general election facing the Democrat Shanna Henry. All right, any questions on the state legislative races before we head briefly to the State Board of Ed? Okay. Well, the State Board of Education, there are five seats on the ballot this year. There are three incumbents who are running without opposition, so they automatically have been reelected to the state board. They are Ann Ma, who's a Democrat from Topeka. She represents District 4. Dina Horst of Salina, she is a, uh, I believe she's a Republican. I think I'm, yeah, she's a Republican. She represents District 6, and Jim McNeese from Wichita represents District 10. State Board of Education District 2, which is in the sort of Kansas City area. Steve Roberts, who's the current state board member, is retiring that seat to run for the U.S. Senate. The battle there will be a Republican primary between former Representative Benjamin Hodge and David Krug. The winner of that primary will go on to face Democrat Melanie Haas in the general election.
2: This is the seat that of longtime State Board Member John Bacon, who I think served something like 16 years or more. Um, so, uh, uh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> that was filled before. Yeah, this is for Steve Ryan. Never mind. Getting ahead of myself. <laughs> sorry.
0: District 8 State Board of Ed seat. That is the Wichita area. Kathy Bush has a Republican primary. She faces Trish Heilman. And then the winner of that primary faces Democrat Betty Arnold in the general election. Some of you may know Betty Arnold is a former um, Wichita School Board member and a former member of the KSB uh, leadership team as well. Moving on to Congress, you may know that uh, US Senator Pat Roberts is retiring this year after uh, several decades of service to the state. And so there is a, quite a battle brewing to replace him. There are 12 Republicans filed to run for Senator Roberts' seat. The frontrunners are uh, current Representative Roger Marshall, who represents the Big First District of Central and Western Kansas, and former Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach. As I noted a few minutes ago, uh, State Board of Ed District 2 member Steve Roberts has also filed for that seat. There are a number of um, Republicans, as I mentioned, and we have them all listed on our Excel spreadsheet that I mentioned to you earlier. We have two Democrats running for Robert's seat. We have former state Senator Barbara Bollier and Robert Tillman. Now, because Representative Marshall is running for Senator Robert's seat, there are a number of folks who are jockeying to replace Representative Marshall as Kansas's representative in US House District 1. We've got four Republicans, uh, Bill Clifford of Garden City, who just as an interesting note is the spouse of State Board of Ed member, Jean Clifford. We have Tracy Mann of Salina, Jerry Molstad of La Crosse, and Michael Sotert of Council Grove. Democrats running for Representative Marshall's seat are Callie Barnett of Garden City, and Christy Cobble Davis of Cottonwood Falls. House District Two, which is kind of the Topeka area and then all the way down uh, the uh, eastern edge of the state, incumbent Steve Watkins is being challenged by Jake LaTurner and Dennis Taylor on the Republican side. Two Democrats are also running. Uh, They are Topeka Mayor Michelle De La Isla and uh, James Windholz of Lawrence. House District Three, which is the Kansas City area, Democratic incumbent Sharice Davids is running in a pretty purple district there. And as a result, she's got a number of Republican challengers, Amanda Atkins, Mike Beeler, Adrian Foster, Tom Love, and Sarah Weir. District four is the Wichita area and South Central Kansas. The incumbent there is Representative Ron Estes, and he has a general election challenger in Democrat Laura Lombard, Uh, who is of the Wichita area. Okay so any questions about the 2020 elections in Kansas? I wanted to let you know we are developing a more detailed analysis of of the uh you know the general election races and some a little with a little more detail on uh, who's retiring, who's running for uh, separate offices, who some of the uh, more Interesting details that we didn't want to take time to cover today, and we will be posting that soon. I cannot see the chat. Are there any questions or comments about 2020 elections that we've covered thus far?
2: Don't see it at this point, but feel free to to put them in. We've got a couple more slides, I think, to cover just one or two. But we want That's to. That's right. You time. So we
0: do. We have a little time. If you come up with a question and you want to uh, enter it in the chat. I wanna touch briefly on a very important call to action that we put out this week. Uh, We are urging our members to contact Senator Jerry Moran and Senator Pat Roberts to ask them to support at least $175 billion in education stabilization funding for K-12 public schools and other important state services as Congress works toward developing a fourth federal stimulus bill. As you probably know, the state, uh, received some CARES Act funding uh, which helps support our uh, operations but KNEA, KASB, the National School Boards Association, the National Teachers Unions, a number of uh, advocacy organizations including the uh, school boards are all asking Congress to support additional stimulus funding for the states in a fourth stimulus bill. That that bill likely will not be uh, introduced or I should say worked on until Congress comes back in July, but uh, it's already the middle of June as you know, so uh, we are asking folks to contact our senators and talk to them about providing that additional stabilization funding. You may have heard about the House Heroes Act and that was a bill that was passed by the U.S. House of Representatives a few weeks ago. That bill, however, included about 58 billion dollars for k-12 education and um and it's just unfortunately not going to be quite enough to help us stave off some budget cuts and uh, really just stabilize the state economy and crucial state services so we have pushed that call to action out this week and we hope you'll participate Okay, any questions on anything that we covered today? Elections, stimulus bill, if you have questions for Brad Noonswander, we can uh, forward those to him, but uh, any any questions or comments on uh, the information that we've provided today?
2: Scott while we give them a minute um, anything you want to remind us? I know you listened to a couple of legislative uh committee meetings this week um, anything well, anything noteworthy before we wrap up
3: uh nothing super noteworthy from the committee meetings, but i I do want to reiterate that uh, I understand there's there's a pretty hotly contested uh, election at the top of the ballot I've heard about. <laughs> But the real uh, education leaders in Kansas really have to focus on those legislative leader, uh, those legislative races, especially because of the funding problems we're going to be facing, and uh, you know, these legislative races are so important to us. Uh, so uh, we're going to try to a couple of years ago uh, during election cycle, we started this sort of a voter participation effort. It's called Get an A in Voting. And we're going to try to reprise that uh, uh, this go-around uh, because, um, you know, in these legislative races, and I've, I've seen it as an observer of politics for 20 years or so in Kansas, and some of these races are, are decided by a handful of votes. So uh, we really need to uh, make sure we focus on, on uh, our, our legislative races. Uh, the last day to register to vote in the primary is July 14th. Uh, mail-in voting occurs, Uh, the deadline to apply for an advance ballot I think is July 28th, so uh, those kinds of deadlines and and, uh, the issues uh, that that, uh, drive our education advocacy are going to be very important
2: this summer. Uh, I would note, and uh, one of our participants could have put it in the chat, uh, we did have some uh, A little uh, of the legislative coordinating council, which are the leadership, have appointed um, four interim studies. There will be more, but two of them could have implications for K K-12 education in some way. One on uh, mental health, one on foster care. Scott, I think you also listened uh, listened to that. So um, you wanna- Yeah, one was- uh, We've got one more question coming up. Okay. Go ahead.
3: Well, just that- uh, Go ahead,
2: Scott, if there's anything else.
3: The, the the speaker uh, proposed these four uh, committees, and uh, he, you know, there was a lot of work uh, done this session on foster care, uh, especially there was the bill that would kind of require that we track kids who are in the foster care system, how they're doing in school. Uh, that didn't, uh, I think that was vetoed at the very end because of some budgetary uh, considerations, but it's obvious that the legislature is very interested in the, in the foster
2: care issue. There is a question that uh, I'll respond to and see if there's any follow-up, um, and that is responding to the rhetoric from KSDE staff, we should not be discussing potential budget cuts. State Department staff seems very confident That there will be the funding that the governor will protect the funding that the legislature has appropriated to K-12 education. We certainly hope that's true. Um, Our our information is effort has just been pointing out that the state is looking at a significant deficit and unless we get the money that Leah was talking about through a stimulus act then there's going to have to be and I the governor herself has repeatedly said extremely difficult budget cuts made and if K-12 education is not cut and it wouldn't have to be there are ways to get around it without federal aid something is going to have to be cut and we're simply trying to help people understand the very difficult uh, choices that the governor may face that ultimately can have an impact because whatever the governor, the governor can act unilaterally, but ultimately the legislature can return and have something to say, and we'll be shaping the budget for next year. So uh, again, I, I'm I I know that the that the uh, leadership of the state department and the state board seem very comfortable that we we will get the funding that has been approved. Uh, so we're not saying we won't. We're simply saying that you know education funding is happening. Uh, Against the backdrop of of just tremendous issues in our state economy uh, that are going to have to be managed through one way or the other, I don't know if that was a clear answer or an artful dodge or whatever you wanted that to be, but <laughs> <laughs> we're just we're just about to wrap up, so we'll give you a chance for any any further follow up.
0: all right well not seeing any more questions or comments i'd like to thank you all for joining us today and uh we will look forward to seeing you all again soon at our next advocacy update in a couple of weeks thanks Thanks. everyone